Welcome to the worst nightmare of all. Reality. Explore the lesser-known stories of our unknown world. Join the pursuit of the paranormal with Ash and Greg. So today we are joined by Steve Yarwood for a chat. Uh, Steve is a long-time researcher of the UFO subject from the UK. Welcome, Steve. Hello there. Hello. You just want to give us a bit of background on you, what you do, and how long you've been doing this for. Okay. Um, I've probably been investigating since we were about 13 years old, so that's like knocking on for 46 years now, although I was interested from about eight years old. Um, I'll, I'll give you a quick run-up on that. It, when I was a kid, we lived in a two-up, two-down, this little cubby hole. And when my mum and dad used to watch TV, I used to nick in the cubby hole and read the comics. And I finished one. And in my dad's toolbox was a magazine. And I thought, oh, what's this? And it's not that kind of magazine before you go there. <laughs> and I used to track down the very issue years later. Wow. And it had wow. a, an article in it uh, about um, an investigation that was years ago. Now... I didn't bother about these things, these discs that were flying about. Not a problem. But what did bother me was this floating thing that this woman had seen in front of her. So I seen this picture and I just legged it out of there and that scared me spitless. But it gave me the interest. And my dad used to come on regularly with stuff like this. So when he, were, when he went around, that was it. That was my start of it all. And that was the beginning. Uh, from then, about a year later, I was, my dad used to work for DC Thompson's who made Dandy and Beano. And uh, used to deliver him around the country. And one late night, early morning, we pulled up in a layby because we were going down to London. And all I did, fall asleep, like you normally do. And then the next thing I remember was my dad putting his foot down and the, in front of us and the sides of us was all lit up. And I remember looking out the window, there's like this huge disc outside. And I thought, that's not right. And all my dad said was just keep your window up and just look forward. And that was it, we just belted up the road. Um, and that that was what started everything off. The only other sighting I ever had was with uh, a mate of mine called Jeff. We were DJing, coming home one night through Daisy Nook, uh, which is near near us, before the M60 motorway was built. And uh, we'd seen lights in the trees, and we pulled over. I thought, oh, I thought it was a, a dodgy helicopter, you know, nearby or something like that. And it wasn't. Literally, probably what 250 yards from us was this huge triangle. And to paraphrase Douglas Adams, it was just hanging in the sky the same way bricks don't. And it just sort of turned on its axes, turned the front to the back of us, and it glowed like a really dull red and shot off in the distance and disappeared in a fraction of a second. That's how, how long ago was that? 1998, 99, something like that it was. Um, and it's definitely a military. I would say it was definitely a military craft of some kind. Um, but it was around the same time as there was a lot of black helicopter sighting seen in the uh, neighbourhood, um, <clears throat> which sort of brings me on to a group that I was involved with at the time called MAPIT. And we did sort of, did, I did some work with them regarding black helicopters. And then I started up my own group about that time called Lepree, um, where I got together uh, with a guy called Dave Dimewell. And I, do, I still do work with Dave with his group, the Tameside Paranormal Research Group. And uh, he does his own podcast called uh, Darius Lives that I get involved with now and again. Um, influences, I would say, Stanton Friedman, Jalen Inuk, Ray Stanford, Leonard H. Stringfield, Jacques Vallée, John Keel and Jim Mars. And that's pretty much it. Cool. So I know you've done quite a lot of research. Yep. Um, I just want to give us a bit of info about what, what, type of research that you've done over the years, what type of like, sort of investigations that you do? Um, I've done basic, what you class as paranormal, the ghost the ghost type stuff. And um, although it's interesting, it, it doesn't get me in as much as the way the UFO stuff does. So I've done loads of things on that, um, on the grounds investigation, doing field investigations, interviewing witnesses, interviewing abductees, um, gone looking for classic cases just to update files and um, look for similarities between older cases and, and, and new cases. And uh, over the years, I've built up what I can only sort of say is an, an absolutely huge library of, you know, books, um, videos, audio, uh, documentation, and it's all there. 
and try as a might to try and sort of like turn it into something where I, I've always wanted to do it into some kind of searchable database. But the minute you start it, it's out of date because I'm getting more stuff. So in the end, it just all gets boxed up. And I, thought, I think, well, I'll remember where it is and go through it. Well, well um, just going back to the, the triangular aircraft or craft that you saw, you said yep. that it was military, in your opinion. Yeah. What makes you think it was military? Um, I just don't see it sort of being like something which would be that futuristic where you could sort of say that's extraterrestrial or something like that. It just seemed, uh, you know, especially when you look at the interviews with, um, you know, from Skunk Works and stuff like that, where they're saying that we literally, we have the technology to take ET home. When I saw that, that's what I believed. I mean, if, if you want, I have still got a sketch of it knocking about. If you want to have a quick look, I can flash it up for you to have a look at. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that'd be great. Not the best, but... Okay, yeah. Yeah, so it's a classic uh like three lights in each corner. Yeah. And the big light in the middle, yeah. The only difference with the big light in the middle, um you're probably not old enough to remember this, but in the um mid eighties you used to have like the L C D watches and they used to have a little segment in the middle of it and it used to tick away. It was like mm -hmm. little segments going up, and that's what the main light was in the middle. It was exactly like that. And then when it rotated, so the top became the bottom, it was the same there as well with this like ticker effects going around it. And all around the sides, it was like, uh, and it's the other way I can describe it is like some other people have described some of these triangles when they've said it looks like the pipe work from the back of a refrigerator. And that's where it did. It looked like that around the sides of it. Okay. Yeah. Did it make any kind of sound, does it? Absolutely it nothing nothing at all and the, the strange thing was because um they'd obviously been doing a lot of building work there and they clocked off for the night or whatever because you could still see like the tractors and that around and daisy nook is part of like a little park so usually when it's quiet you can still hear some of the animals you know in the trees whatever but it was nothing it was absolutely silent you couldn't even hear cars in the distance it was that weird and i mean it must have only been what 20 seconds at the top that we actually seen it um and you know in this day and age you probably would have phoned in your pocket with a, the camera on it and been able to take a picture or whatever but we were just so engrossed at this i honestly don't think we would have had time to, to take it out of our pocket and take a picture it was just yeah. like what the hell is it it was unbelievable and i'll you know i'll, I'll take it to the grave that it's just like <laughs> i can't explain it but i just know that i it's not extraterrestrial. I don't, I don't know why. I just think that from what I've seen, from what I've read, uh, like I say, the, the skunk work stuff, I do think it's um, something of ours that probably in about 10 to 15 years, all of a sudden they say, oh, look what we've got. What always puzzles me, and which I think would be even stranger than actually seeing something like that, is the fact that it makes no sound. That's one thing that when everybody says it didn't make a sound, in my head, I can't even imagine an object moving. Well, the, it doesn't make a sound. Yeah, so. Some of the black helicopters, um, they, they don't make sound. They use what's called a, a no-tar system, a no-tail rope system. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Bell Helicopters years ago that did a um, television presentation for some of the big companies. And it had a guy sat in his garden re reading a paper, and this helicopter lands behind him, totally silent, and takes off again. I mean, that's just using something to negate the technology what we've got now. Yeah. So I mean, if, if you're using something which isn't using rocket propulsion, if you're using something that isn't using any kind of combustion uh, propulsion, which we use now, then technically it would be silent. I mean, all you got to do is look at uh, electric cars when they go into electric mode. I mean, yeah. they just zip up behind you. What the hell is that? Mm -hmm. So, you know, th yeah. that doesn't surprise me one bit. The silence thing, I just think it's, yet another step forward in, in our present technology. So you mentioned, uh, we're talking about your, your history that you did some paranormal investigations. Do you think that there's a link between UFOs and other aspects of the paranormal field? Um, I, I have, I've thought about this quite a lot and a lot of people seem to think that, you know, one thing goes to the other, but I mean that, when you think of how the universe works, everything is linked anyway, whichever way you go to do it. 
I do think there is an umbrella thing in regards of certain things like, <clears throat> excuse me, um, obviously entities, possibility of portals, and if there's a way that a portal could open up from, uh, say, one point in the universe to another, then there's also the possibility that a portal could open up from one point in a dimension to another one. So you get extrusions from our dimension into others, and perhaps that's sometimes why people cannot perceive things in a correct way, and the only sort of look at it to sort of say in their frame of reference and you know i think we discussed it before when i said that somebody once said like i could see colors but it's not colors that i can describe and 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 that's basically it that you know uh, if, if we are getting these extrusions from elsewhere we can, we may not be able to put it into a frame of our reference so we tie it into our own so in, in that way i do think it is difficult to sort of say that every aspect of the paranormal would sort of fit within that umbrella but I do think there are aspects of it that do, whether you can sort of say, well, you know, can you tie in a Sasquatch to a UFO sighting? Can you tie, uh, you know, uh, the kobolds and, and, and elves and stuff like that? Are they into it? I really don't know. I mean, for all I know, you know, some of these like elves, it could be like ET and one's been left behind and it's carried on from there, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So do you have a, a favourite case from like the whole, obviously, past 70 years or so, there's been lots of famous cases. Do you have a, a favourite one? My favourite one's got to be the Kelly Hopkinsville case, yeah. um, where literally a family became under attack by aliens overnight. Um, they had, like, diggers, and they could float and do backflips, and then people were shooting them, and it sounded like they were hitting buckets, and they, they, they were absolutely scared spitless. Eventually, I think there were, like, 12 of them or something that were there, and they all got out and went to the cops, and the cops piled back with them, and they went there, and it's like, bullet holes in, in, in the doorways in, in all the meshing and stuff like that and they went, oh, looks like somebody's been shooting at stuff and they went, yep, yeah, there's these aliens uh, or these creatures and they go through it all, tell the story again and the coppers go, oh well they don't seem to be here now and they go away and within like half an hour, an hour these creatures are back again and they're doing the same thing all the gunshots go off and they disappear and of course Blue Book comes along and they said well, what it was, was uh, a local circus and it was a lot of monkeys in the silver spacesuits there you go. Blue folk, got a lot of them. <laughs> there was quite a lot of sightings, though, weren't there? In there? Was it South America? Was it the early 50s, early to mid 50s? And it was like hairy dwarves. I mean, there was a couple of a couple of guys who almost got kidnapped and dragged out of the car into this ship, and he ended up like a big fist fight on, on the street with his thing and ended up giving it a right digging and then does a runner with his mate. But that, that's just one case, but if you look at a lot in South America at that time, it seemed to be of the same creature, hairy, small creatures, which we don't see, seem to see many, uh, you know, hear of anymore. But it always makes me wonder, because the, the, you get these things where people are saying there's, there's 25 different species of aliens visiting the Earth at any one time. Well, okay, there might be a lot of creatures visiting from different places but it doesn't necessarily have to be at one time what if there is not this magic thing where you can travel instantaneously here and there but there's a set period where say perhaps one lot does come and then another period when it's another lot and that's why we do get you know like different creatures at certain points through ufo flaps i don't know <laughs> i really don't know it's fascinating and you know some of them are a little bit extraordinary and out, out of the world but um it, it always seems to me when you hear about the, the greys that they seem to be the ones that are sort of stuck around more than anything else. So I don't know, perhaps they've got nothing better to do. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so what, um, so you, you're talking about different types uh, of creatures, say, coming at, or different species coming at different times, potentially. Yeah. Possibly, um, yeah. What... What are your thoughts on the way that the uh, UFOs over the years have sort of changed shape? They seem to become almost like tic-tac or or quite uh, spherical or... Uh, same cylinder. Yeah, whereas back in, say, the 50s, 40s, 50s, they were more like a, a dish or a hubcap. What, why do you think that... that's that's evolved as well? I do think it's very much swings and roundabouts, to be honest, because... We got that thing, didn't we, in the um, late 1800s with the, the giant airships in America. And that was like, you know, our technology, but with like a few years in advancement. And everybody seems to point to that, especially a lot of UFO researchers nowadays. They point to it and say, well, there you go. All it is is present technology, and we're just witnessing it 
a few years before it actually comes out because they do say don't they that the, the military they're, they're about 20 years ahead of anything and when we actually get it they're obviously 20 years ahead again i mean this is the stealth fighter when we got that it was like oh my god absolutely amazing but i mean that's been knocking around the idea that since 1969 or something so it goes to show that it, it, it's a progression but the thing that always gets me whichever way you look at it if you go back to like the Aboriginal paintings of thousands of years ago and the Anderful Man painting, uh, did some is it in France something was it like 10, 12,000 years ago or something? And they all depict the glowing lights, the discs. So I, it's difficult to sort of say where we are actually looking at this. Are we again seeing something which is part of our perception? And that's how we look at it from a frame of reference because you think of it, old Ugg years ago in the uh, in the caves, he, his thing to do was to go out, to hunt, to find something to eat, to keep warm and look after his family. Whenever they did anything like drawings in the caves, it would have to be something of absolute mega importance. So if these are drawing these little dots or these discs or these cylindrical things, and then sometimes these creatures with like strange masks or whatever on, it must have made an impression on them. So if we look back through history, you will see that the majority of stuff that we've seen has either been cylindrical or disc shape. So perhaps a lot of the stuff which we are seeing now is actually the man-made stuff that we see, yet the cylindrical and the, uh, the disc shape stuff is from that uh, period, you know, it's been around for all them years. The only other thing you can do is turn it on its head and say, well, what if it's time travellers and they're there then and they're there now? But again, that opens up another can of worms. Yeah, that's that's a big discussion. <clears throat> um, what about uh, we would we have been talking previously about um, what that you can your brain sort of interpreting what is seeing. Yeah. So is it possible that some of the sightings that people report are just the fact that that's the closest thing that they can perceive in their mind? So like we're talking about that we we spoke about Tic Tac before and yeah. is it it was that the shape that he saw or was it the fact that um commander favor that was what he thought he saw or his brain said he saw and the people that have described hubcaps like type craft all those like the egyptians talking about the chariots uh the gods coming down in chariots of fire from the skies yeah is it just that that is the closest thing that their brain can interpret what they're seeing well, the Tic Tac shape, it's actually been seen off and on for a few years. Um, I think there was, there was a sighting in the late 70s. I'd have, to, I'd have to dig into it properly, but I do know from some of, some of my research stuff that there's at least two definite Tic Tac shapes that have been seen throughout the years. Even like if you if you want to look at the Zamora case, that's actually an egg-shaped object on girders. So, I mean, technically, if you look at that from another angle, that, that could you know, be perceived as a tic-tac shape as well. Um, but I, you've also got to remember that there's been sightings over the years that we that man hasn't actually seen. They've only seen it using the technology, using, say, infrared cameras. Uh, was it the famous Brazilian case where they, they were up and they, they, there's like lines of them going across, but they, they couldn't see them. It was only on the um, actual footage what had done it. So again, it's all, like I say, it's a form of our perception. When we do see it, are we actually seeing it how it is or how it's coming out, if you know, it doesn't sound right that. Um, but I'm trying to think of a way of putting it. Uh, it's like looking at a strange hologram. If it's all done in separate bits, you can't make sense of it until it all twists round and it becomes apparent what it is. So if we're seeing these objects only in a certain way at a certain time, perhaps we're not getting the full picture. Like say, the brain's filling in the blanks and the brain's doing its best just to please you because you don't want to be left with something that you don't know about. So when it's doing it, you know, one person seeing it one way is different to somebody seeing it another. I mean, how many times have you seen a UFO case where somebody's turned around and said, well, it was obviously this and they'd drawn it and then somebody else had done it and it's pretty much the same as it was drawn, but with perhaps, I don't know, like a, a, something sticking out the top or out the side and then somebody else has seen it and then it's like a, a bump underneath. It's never 100%. There's always something else. That could be the fact that people, some people are better for attention to detail than others, or it could just be that 
things are slightly different to other people. You mentioned the uh, the Zamora case then, and that's a, that's a fascinating one. That was another one that was investigated by Project Blue Book, and that yeah. was the uh, was he a police sergeant in Socorro, yeah, in uh, New Mexico in uh, nineteen sixty four. 64, April the 24th, at 17.45. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty specific. Uh, do you give us a, just a bit of background on that incident case? Uh, listeners aren't aware. Um, but like I say, 17.45, April 24th, 1964. Um, it was actually finally classified on the Hynek classification system of the CA, uh, C3K because entities were actually seen with the object. Blue Book evaluated it, and may I say it was file number 8766, and they evaluated it as an unidentified, which um, that was one of the things that Jail and I had turned around and said, you know what, we're in a tough spot here with it because we can't explain this. But basically what had happened was uh, Lonnie Zamora was chasing a speeding car down one of the local highways, and uh, he saw a blast of flame, and he, he, he thought that this local dynamite shed, which was nearby, had exploded. So he broke off from the chase, disappears down this little gully. And he, at first he thought there was a car overturned in this arroyo nearby. And then he noticed what looked like either two small adults or two children near it. And he thought, it's a bit odd. So he drove a little bit further up, dives out of the car, and then notices that this overturned car wasn't an overturned car, but was in fact this like egg-shaped object on these girdle-like legs. And these... What he, the figures that he originally seen there um, had disappeared. And then he heard what he, he believed was like thumps or, or crashes or something like that. And then a blue flame came out from underneath the object and it started, started rising up into the air. So he thought this thing's going to explode, dives for the deck. Nothing happens, but he hears this whirring sound. So he looked round and this whirring sound finally disappeared. And he noticed that the legs what were on the craft were no longer there and weren't visible to him. Um, so he's watching it and then all of a sudden the blue flame stops and silently just moves off slowly into the distance, picking up speed and disappears. So he phones back to, to the HQ and says, look, I think I need somebody out here. Somebody comes out to actually see what's going on and there's still like burning bush from where this thing had gone off and the, uh, imprints from um, where these landing legs were and they quickly sort of tried to sort of keep the area safe. And then strangely enough, this guy from the local airbase turns up. Um, but in them days, you could listen to like police frequencies and stuff. Like, it weren't digitized or anything like that. There was even a guy, I think he was he from some like cow shed agency or something had picked it up and come out to have a look as well. Uh, but they, they ended up putting like rocks around where the indentations were to sort of uh, rescue it. And uh, yeah, the, the rest is history. I mean, I've got quite a bit of, sort of in-depth stuff here if you, if you need me to go into it. Um, but it is one of the best cases. And because of the integrity of Lonnie Zamora, uh, Jail and Ironick absolutely took a liking to this bloke and said, you know what, he is he, straight as a die. This, this guy's telling the truth. I don't care what anybody says, this guy's telling the truth. And yet you had the likes of Philip Class coming out saying, no, this is absolute nonsense. But mind you, Philip Class used to come out and say everything was nonsense. And it was a weather balloon or, or, or whatever, or ball lightning. That was his favourite, wasn't it? Um, and, you know, it was, it was a shame that, you know, it sort of it ruined Lonnie Zamora's career. I think, if you remember rightly, I think he ended up getting divorced and uh, sadly died, you know, a few years, 89 or something, written down somewhere. But uh, he still kept a promise to, to a guy there. Some of the things which he saw and promised that he would never sort of reveal, one of which was the insignia on the side of the of the craft. He's seen it, described it, and uh, the FBI blog who'd come out, obviously the guy from the airbase, basically turned around and said, you can't say anything about this. <clears throat> if you're going to say something about an insignia, give him one of these. And there was like three to choose from. And there's three that have been given out over the years. Uh, but the one which was known, it, it, Lonnie Zamora never sort of released it. And it's strange, actually, because if you actually look at some of the paperwork at that time, um, one of the insignias was actually from a company who's who doing some part of development on a lunar landing craft, which was going to be used by the Apollo missions. Uh, so a lot of people then tied into that saying, well, perhaps that's what I've seen, something secret uh, to do with the Apollo landings. But it's like 
Zamora said he originally thought that that was going to be the case, but when he was taken uh, in the evening to be interviewed by the bloke from the Air Force Base and the man from the FBI, they basically said, no, it's, it's got nothing to do with that. We've got nothing in the area that is capable of doing that. What you're seeing is what you're seeing. What we have to do now, it's sort of like a damage limitation. And being the good citizen that he was, he, he kept his word and, and, and never said anything to anyone about it. I mean, there's quite a few interviews, if you look around on uh, radio from the time, and people actually push him over this. And he, he, he's quite adamant. He's saying, I, you know, I was told uh, I, I'm not to talk about this and I'm not going to. It is a fascinating case. And the, I, I always find interesting how he describes the... The, the beings, I guess. So as, as either big children or small adults. Yeah. Uh, which is really trying. So you picture a small adult, you think a child. You picture a big child, you think possibly an adult um, or teenager age, because you could say that possibly teenagers. I know that one of the explanations put forward was that it was uh, teenagers messing around. Yeah, that was uh, what I'm saying from a local college or something that had a beef against him because he he'd pulled them up in the cars a few times or something. But, I mean, to, to, to have pulled off something like that and get all the timings right, to have, like, a, a, an explosion, to pull him off the road, you know, are you going to know that he's going to break away from this chase to come there? And then you've got to create this this crap so that it looks like he's turning up to, to see something. And then what, what do you do? You've got, like, 7,000 helium balloons hidden by low clouds or something that will lift it up and then silently yeah. pick it up. It may, I don't know if you've ever seen it. There was, um, you remember the, the TV show, The Goodies? It's Not really. It's TV show. No. Like, these three blokes who used to go around and do things. Um, and they, they did this thing where they took the mick out of the UFOs and Arthur C. Clarke and stuff like that. And they were showing like the Loch Ness Monster. And Arthur C. Clarke, when he used to do Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, he'd always say, personally, I don't believe it. And he'd come off with this long-winded explanation and one of them is the Loch Ness Monster is that he said that it was a, a rhinoceros swimming on its back with a French loaf in its mouth with a tortoise balanced on top of it. And that seemed a more logical explanation for the Loch Ness Monster than all these things about uh, the, the, this group of college students pulling a prank on Lonnie Zamora. It would have been more simple to do a, a Loch Ness Monster like that than it would to pull this prank on him. <laughs> yeah. It's crackers. But, you know, again... It's, it's of that age where, you know, I, I think in a few years' time, we, we, we're going to find a lot of people in um, TV, magazines and that, who have poo-pooed the entire subjects of UFOs, uh, having to take a step back. I remember years ago um, being at a UFO conference and, and speaking to some friends there and say, you know what, I think we should uh, get, get some money put to one side, get a publishing house set up, get a few um, web addresses signed out, just for the day when we when all this comes out, we can, can launch the magazine. I told you so, because that that's what's going to happen. And there's going to be a lot at the time. We're going to go. You know what? We thought we were doing right, pulling it all off, and you're going to have nothing to hide behind. And this, like I say, with the Zamora case, they tried pulling everything out of there to say it was this, it was that, it was the other, and there was just no credibility. Like I say, Jail and I knew he. he he had no explanation at all. He, he honestly believed that what um, Zamora had seen, Zamora had seen, whatever it was, but it was certainly nothing that he could sort of put his hands on out and say, well, it's this, it's this, it's this. And at the time, you know, he was a bit of a lackey for, for the Air Force and used to string out all about, you know, it's a low-flying jumbo jet with glasses on or it's, it's a weather balloon or it's swamp gas or something like this. But he couldn't do it in that case. On the topic of disclosure, which you alluded to there, about basically being able to say, we told you so. Uh, obviously, disclosure at the minute is quite a hot topic with the, the Senate's bill in the US. Yeah. But we're getting it back to this country, uh, the UK. Uh, obviously, you've been researching this for, for a few decades, and you've obviously been doing it since all the MOD used to or apparently investigate and tape reports. So this is a, I guess this is a two-part question. The first part is... Do you think that they did stop investigating this in 2009 when they say they did? Or And second part of the question is, do you think we'll get the files that they promised they release? I think on the subject of the files, I think it will be a case of it will be um, 
it'll look as though it's going to happen. Then all of a sudden it'll be like, sorry, we're going to have to reclassify these because of what's been going on, uh, you know, the state of the world, you know, anti-terrorism, whatever. They'll always find some excuse where they won't have to do it. So I, I think we'll get a couple out, but I don't think it'll be anything of great importance. Be a few things to keep you stringing along till the next time they go, oh, look, we're your friends. We're, we're going to let some more stuff out for you. I mean, that's probably me just being the conspiracist as well, because I honestly don't believe, which is part of your first question, that they stopped then. I think it was pretty much in the similar the case of Project Blue, but where it was like, sorry, we're not doing it anymore. But if anything important comes through, it'll go around to the original uh, department where all the good stuff was going to originally anyway. So that's still open. So, no, I, I don't think the, the British stopped, stopped it, and I certainly don't think that they'll release all the files. It's like, like you say, because obviously this time last year was when they said that they were going to release all the remaining documents and files in the first quarter of 2020. And then at the back end of last year, with the, the Scotland case, the famous account in the name, not the famous one, but then they said now we're classifying it for another 50 years. Yeah. So obviously that's, that's two contradictory statements. So like I say, it just alludes to the fact that we're probably never going to get the, the good stuff. No, no. You, you'll get what they want you to get. It's as simple as that. If, if it's deemed necessary that, uh, what's the, you know, you don't really need to know this. Well, you really won't need to know it at all. Um, I think, what was it, in, in the words of V for Vendetta, what was it? The, uh, the people shouldn't be scared of the government. The government should be scared of the people. But I think when it comes to anything like this, it's like they say, you know, no matter who you vote for, it's always the government who gets in. So no matter who's in power, if they think that it's, it's necessary for you not to know, you are not going to know. What do you think disclosure would look like in that case? So they, if they're going to keep all the juicy stuff, um, do, do we, will we see a kind of disclosure? I, I, I honestly don't think so in my lifetime. I think pretty much what's going to happen is what has happened now. I mean, it's been 70 odd years or something like that. And we've got to a point now where the, the, you know, the United States Navy have turned around and gone, gee, Willikers, guess what? We don't know what these things are, but they're there. And what's really our response apart from, well, we told you that for God knows how many years and you're coming out with this now. So for me, this is like a little bit of appeasement where they've come out and said, you know what? We've been caught with our pants down. Yeah, there is something going on. So they've got this thing going now where what is it within the next few months but we're releasing more and more material. Again, that's it. One, it's not against you know national security. And two, if you know that those who it's shown to first of all agree that we should see it, which I don't think it will. But I think if anything now, this will be like the bar's set. This is this is as much on the UFO subject. We as a government, or we as a worldwide government, if you want to expand it, are going to tell you for a hell of a long time. So accept the crumbs that we throw in you and take it as read that, you know, you've, got, you've won part of the battle, but the war is still going on. And I honestly believe that's the case. So one of my, my favourite cases from the UK is the Broadhaven School yeah. uh, case. Uh, obviously, we had the Broadhaven's been known for quite a few different cases, the it was dubbed the Broadhaven Triangle back in the 70s. Yep. Uh, I believe. 77. 77. Spot on with your, with your, with your dates. Um, February 1977. <laughs> and it was on John, John Craven's news round on the uh, Monday, the 7th of February. I remember it quite clearly. That was the year I was born. It was the, spec it was the second spot in the show as well. Incredible. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's about 40 years ago, you know, <laughs> dates and times and yeah. <laughs> what it channel was, it was on. It was somewhere in Wales. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but the, what fascinates me about this case is it's, um, so yeah, basically it was a group of school kids on the, on the dinner break at school and they all saw something in the playground and a, and a humanoid figure in a silver suit, I think they described it as. So he went and told the teachers, teachers told him to stop being silver. But the, what fascinates me the most is they all drew pictures of what they saw and the similarities between the pictures is like most of them just like they show a, 
disc-shaped object with like a dome on top. And then 40 years later, they've all kept to the story. Yeah. Not been one of these kids that were like eight, eight or nine at the time. In 40 years, not one of them has come forward and said, yeah, we were messing about. We were we were all on it together. We were just copying each other's pictures. We we just had, we just played the trick on the teacher. And that I think that holds more weight than probably most cases that, that I've looked at. Well, when they were asked to do the drawings, um, the headmaster at the time, he taught, so it was well in, I think he was called, um, he did it under exam conditions where he took him into a room, no one was allowed to talk, can't do this, can't do that, and he got them to draw it all separately so that, that there'd be no sort of speaking to say anything, but other teachers to keep an eye on them so they couldn't chat in between each other, and like you say, Everything was all pretty much done. Uh, I think it was, was it about 11 school kids, I think it was, in the end that, that, that they, they, they actually done this with. And uh, it's just like, like I say, it, it's all pretty much bang on, these drawings, even down to the guy, you know, the, 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 the extraterrestrial or spaceman, as they put it. Um, it, it was all very similar to doing that. And even one of the teachers um, who sort of a couple of days later said, look, you know, I know people are saying that it's possibly this silage tank down there or this, this some kind of mechanical arm or something as well that, that was being used. I said, no, it wasn't. I said, I've seen it. So there's no way you can get anything down there. And certainly not over the past few days down there because the amount of mud in there, one, you'd have seen it, you know, any tracks what were left. And uh, yeah. so it, it had just been stuck there anyway. So this teacher, again, she said, I, I can't really say much, but yeah, it, it definitely did happen. But there was lots of other things which were going on around the time as well. You had like you know the Coombs Farm, Ripperston Farm, where um, she, she the, the, the wife is it Pauline? She was chased by a glowing football, and the car started to cut out and literally rolled near the door. And her and the kids ran out into the house, and then this ball zips off into the distance. And then a few days later, her and her husband are watching TV, and all the telly starts freaking out. So he goes over to sort of mess around with the telly, and at the window this huge silver suited creature which is so tall that it can only just you can just see like the bottom of where the chin would be and he's i mean this guy he's a proper farmer does not scared of anything but he said he absolutely cacked it and you know they got the police they phoned the police the police came they had a search outside and that and nothing could be found uh, and then one of the other stories was that he put all these cows uh, from the end of the day into um, one of the barns and they'd lock the door locked it up for the night and he had to think it was about a five minute walk from the, the barn to the house, gets in the house, kicks his shoes off, gets to get a, a cup of tea. The phone goes and it's his neighbour from two miles down the road or something saying, all your cows are down that in my road. He says, what do you mean? He said, they're, they're down here on my land. You better come and get them. He said, I've only just flaming locked them up not more than five minutes ago. He said, well, they're here now. So he goes up to the barn and it's open and there's no cows there, which have somehow miraculously managed to travel something like two miles in less than five minutes. Incredible stories. And then you, what was it, the Fort Haven Hotel with Rose Granville, yeah. where she seen like the, the landed craft outside and that, and they had someone from RAF Brody come along to it. And it was like, oh, it's okay, love. You know, pat her on the head and, you know, appease her a bit and off they went. Yeah, and she saw uh, humanoid creatures as well. Yeah, and also the, the, the disappearing into stacked rocks. You said the rocks opened up and they flew into it. In fact, um, hopefully when all this COVID thing's over, me, uh, my mate Nodge and um, Dave from uh, Same Side Paranormal Research, hoping to be going down there to reinvestigate all this again anyway. So we're going to be having a, a word with a few UFO societies down there and spend a few days and uh, see what we can find out, see if there's anything else still going on. Awesome. It's always worth, uh, like, say, we, we look into these cases, especially uh, this case. It draws a lot of parallels with the aerial school incident in Zimbabwe. It's a lot more with the Westall one in Australia in 1966, with the uh, kids outside seeing the, 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 the discs above the trees, and you know the teachers came out. Again, there's a, the, the teachers there who have been told not to say a word. One was threatened. He said, look, we, we know you enjoy your drink. So if you tell any more about this, we'll, we'll, we'll say that you've obviously been drinking during school time. And one of the kids that was there who actually climbed over the fence and got near after, I think she actually touched one of the objects and she, she passed out. And uh, when the police turned up, an ambulance turned up and this girl was taken away and her and the family had, had never been seen since. 
really, really interesting case. You know, like you said, the aerial one in Zimbabwe, that's a similar one, wasn't it, where they, they're waving at the alien and stuff like that. And uh, But this one, it's literally, they were out playing and these things just appeared from nowhere and started dancing around in the sky and one pretty much landed ne next to the school and the kids went legging it over to it and the teachers are sort of going, oh, what's that? <laughs> but yeah, uh, have a look at that. It's a really interesting case. Yeah, definitely, because with, with the Zimbabwe one, because uh, James Fox covered it in his uh, The Phenomenon yeah. Uh, yeah. documentary last year. And like I say, he, he went back and they've re-spoken to the kids that are now obviously adults um, and they've not changed their stories. And, and that's what you've always got to look at in, in, in cases, that, you know, that the stories is coherent all the way along, which is quite strange, actually, because if, if you talk about, you know, uh, Adamski, um, he always stuck to his story. Yeah, he's always been sort of called out, you know, like a hoax or whatever. Again, that, that's a different thing because, it, you know, in that time, there was a lot of people which were doing the, the contactee experience and stuff, and a lot were making quite a bit of money off it. And, you know, Adamski made a few bob uh, with the books, allegedly went to see the Pope and, and all other stuff like that. But then you find out that he actually had a hot dog stand at the bottom of the observatory, so who knows? Uh, so what what's what are you looking at anything at the minute? Have you got any current projects or research that you're looking at? Um, well, I've been doing these um, like mini documentaries that I put onto a YouTube channel that I created called The Unconventional Ufologist. And it's just like half an hour documentaries that I, I narrate and then I try to create graphics and whatever to go with it. Uh, one of which is the uh, Lonnie Zamora case. Um, what's the other ones I've done? Uh, let's see what... The Kecksburg was another one. And it's another couple, but my brain's absolutely adult. It's all day. I'm doing one at the moment about the uh, Lake Baikal uh, in uh, Russia with the uh, the aliens underwater, which allegedly attacks on uh, Russian divers. That one fascinates me because Lake, Lake Baikal is absolutely huge. All sorts seen on there. Um, you could put it down to Fatima, Morgana, or whatever, where people have seen trains on it and cars whizzing across the water and stuff like that. So it could be some kind of temperature inversion, which is causing that, but disappearing boat, boats, disappearing people, um, strange lights under the water. Um, the, the, the ice gets covered every so often and there's, there's like disc holes as though something's punched out from underneath and, and come through it. So it, it's a little bit, that's something I'm looking into at the moment. Like I say, this documentary is probably about two thirds done and I'll have it posted by uh, Middle of April, middle of March, something like that, and put that on there. But that's the thing at the moment. What I, what I try and do is bring some of the old cases, classical ones, and some that other people may have not even heard of, just out so they can sort of go, "Oh, I didn't know about that." Because, like you say, the Tic Tac case with the Nimitz, been in the news all of a lot now. Rendlesham Forest has been done to death. Roswell has been done to death. I mean, it gets that bad that <laughs> I, mean, I, I have a telly in the kitchen. I, I used to be a chef, so I do all the cooking at home. When I'm cooking, I'll put documentaries on and I'd, so I cook away, look up, doing this. And the missus is in the other room. And it got to the point of the week, and this guy comes and says, and of course, Roswell. And she says, I think I know more about bloody Roswell now than anybody. And she's not got an interest in it, but obviously, because it's always on. Um, so th there's, there's so many cases that have been done to death that I'd like to do stuff where I can bring to people and say, well, actually, have you heard of this one? It's like that with the, the, the Westall case. You know, I'm glad now that I've been able to enlighten you and say, go and have a look at that because it's, it's a really good case. And that, that's really what I want to do. What's going on now is important, but also what's gone on in the past is also important. We, you know, we, we should have a look at the stuff like that, revisit it and say, you know, is there any similarities to anything that's going on now? Is there any similarities to any other cases? Because, you know, if there's some kind of coherency in that, then that's something that we need to know when we're doing our investigations so that we can sort of say, well, actually, you know, if we look at this, there's a comparison that can be drawn across the board and not just, just left out. Not willy-nilly, there's something actually there. Definitely. What are your thoughts on Bob Lazar? Ah, he's, he's a bit like the Marmite of the UFO world. You either love him or hate him. And uh, I, I remember where, when... Where do you sit on that then? I, I, to be honest, pretty much on the fence. And I know it sounds dead easy to do because you can turn around and say, well, you know, anyone could say that. But I remember when it all came out, um, you know, they were the days when UFO magazine, you know, the, the, 
the guys who ran it used to go to places like Las Vegas and used to wear the tank tops because it was sort of fashionable to do at the time. And when it all broke, I remember reading about this property and I'm thinking, oh my God, this guy's actually opened his mouth. He's going to be sort of wondering who's knocking at the door every five minutes when stuff goes on. And then you, you find little bits where they said, yeah, but, he, you know, he didn't actually work there. We've not found any reason to say that he did. And then Standard Freeman had come up and said, well, actually, I found this and look at that. He, he has worked there. And there's little bits that sort of start to fit. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it'd be like, oh, well, actually, he was working in a brothel, building a website. And it's like, well, what's that got to do with anything? But again, you know, chuck some crap out there. And if it sticks, that, that helps you sort of... Yeah. Who was, was it who said it that if you can't attack the evidence, attack the person? I think it may have been Stanton Friedman who said that. And I've noticed that hell of a lot in ufology that when people don't like somebody saying something against perhaps one of their theories, it's like, oh, I'm not having this. Let's, let's dig the dirt on him and they, they throw that out. And I think it's dead wrong. And I think to some extent that's actually happened with Bob Lazar because when he took the initial team out there with the cameras to sort of say these things are flying about, you knew the time and everything. Uh, you know, you don't sort of just roll up there and go, oh, well, they've not shown up tonight. If it actually did at that time, he's got a bit of inside information. And, you know, pretty much his story hasn't changed over the years. OK, there's possibly a couple of embellishments and everybody sort of digs in and says, oh, yeah, but couldn't have done this, he couldn't have done that. And then, you know, that element that he found and everyone poo-pooed, then a few years later, it's like, oh, oh look, look, look what's here. But well, like, Bob, you were right. He's like, oh, well, come on, Bob, let's find something else we can have a go at you. So it is, it's, it's, it's that balance. I, I do think that there's something there. I'd like to know a little bit more, but unfortunately, because of everything that happens and everybody that's researched it, you, I don't think you, you get the fairness involved in it. You either get the over-the-top ones who sort of like worship at the feet of Bob Lazar and think that, you know, he can't do no wrong, or you go the whole hog where people are sort of bringing him out, turn around and burn him at the stake. And that, that, that was the reason why I brought up Bob Lazar, because his story tends to, not, his particular version of the story hasn't changed, whether or not nope. people have found stuff okay. out about him. Uh, and it's interesting that all these historic cases, the ones that have really uh, had a profound impact on ufology, yeah. uh, are the ones that haven't changed. Well, definitely um, there's a moral one. Mm -hmm. about the Kelly Hopkinsville one before, you know, each member of the family went to the grave and, and never changed the story at all. Um as in with the, the, the Welsh Triangle, all the, all the school kids involved in that, same thing, never changed the story. The West Nile School, never changed the story. The uh, Zimbabwe one, never changed the story. Everything that, that I can honestly say would be a damn good case. It's always been that the people involved have never changed that tale at all. Mm. Yeah. And the thing is that a lot of these people have got a lot to lose. I know the kids haven't at that point, but... Some of these, anytime anybody uh, raises their head uh, and, and speaks out, <clears throat> you're fair game for the media, for society, because uh, it, it's completely against the norm. So to, for anybody... The kids would have had so it's, I mean, good God, I mean, I, I remember as a kid saying to people, I was a Star, Star Trek fan, good God, get your head kicked in for that. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, it's fashionable. But the thing <laughs> is, it, it's brave for anybody to come out and say it. It really is. I mean, yeah. especially the abductees. And, you know, abductee experiences, or in my experience of abductee experiences, that people I've known have stuck to the story. You, you can see a few around the internet, a few which have brought books out on that. There's, that there's a problem somewhere along the line with some of their stories when it changes. It's like, um, oh, good lad, I forgot his name, Fire in the Sky. Travis uh, Walton. Yeah, Travis Walton. He's... His story's pretty much stayed the same, yet he still gets absolutely slaughtered. Mm -hmm. And this bloke, you know, was it, was it four lie detector tests that he did and he's passed every single one? Yeah, you know, yeah. you can get people going on uh, Jeremy Kyle. And, you know, they, they sort of fail it or whatever, and everything's A-OK -okay with them. But no, Travis Walton, he's always stuck to his story. Same with the lads from the Allagash abductions as well. They were the same. They did uh, the uh, lie detector test and passed it all each time. And yet you still get people coming down on them. So if these cases, with everything that goes for it, and, and those witnesses are the ones who, themselves who went through it and can still stay consistent with that story, um, for me, it, it, it gives a hell of a lot of credence. 
when they're coming back and they say, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, and I forgot about that. It's like, what's it, Betty and Barney Hill? Their case was absolutely superb. And it was only after um, uh, Barney died and uh, Betty started becoming a little bit, shall we say, extravagant with the truth and started adding little bits to it that people started sort of saying, well, you know what, this is nonsense. But it's like, you know, like anything, things can't, you can't take away that element of truth, even when stuff does start going into it. If there's an element of truth there, that's what you should be looking at. Not looking for everything to chuck it to one side, but we're very easy at doing that nowadays because it's like, well, if that's the case, then obviously everything else is rubbish. But if you've got facts and, you know, stuff to back up what was originally there, that, that one thing that's come out, don't just chuck everything away because of that. People can have a lapse sometimes. They can turn around and say, oh, yeah, this happened. And sometimes it's just to try and make their story sound a little bit better because they fed up with everyone coming around on them. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah, we, we, we've spoken to someone, um, the owner of Stardust Ranch, John Edmonds. Oh, yeah. You know, if you, so <clears throat> we spoke to him, and when you speak to the guy... The story, if you take it at face value, this guy's had an incredible experience. If you look, try and pick it apart, it's it's too extravagant, this story. Yeah. But if there's just an element of truth in there, you know, we've discussed this before, if, you, if, you, if there's just one part of that that's true, the whole thing's incredible. Because that leads us back to what we were saying before about perception. And the way our mind can, can read stuff that sometimes yeah it may seem too fantastic but that could just be that person's mind try to make sense of it all and coming out with something that because we didn't see it we're only getting their perception of it their frame of reference and so sometimes you know when people come to me and say you don't really believe this and they tell me something and it's so weirdly fantastic i have a tendency to think you know what it's probably damn good reason why there's quite a bit of truth to that because you have got to take something up make it up that you know it's something that's going to seem reasonable yeah yeah exactly talking of uh, things not changing or possibly things are changing through your decades of research and being a part of the ufo community how has the media's approach or representation of the ufo subject changed well i i actually worked in the media for a while um, i used to work in local radio and uh, it, it's always been, and it, it will be for all of a long time, uh, that, you know, and finally story. It's got to be one of them where it's, some, it's either got to bring on somebody who says that he eats spiders because he's been told to do so by some grey alien from Zeta Reticuli, and now he's got superpowers. Or it'll just be that really dodgy light in the sky video, which, you know, which, whichever way you look at it, no matter what camera you've got, if you're just the average man on the street who doesn't know how to use a camera properly, all you're going to have is a shaky hand camera with this light dodging about. And, uh, and of course, this has been an all news items, but uh, our specialist who they dug out from some other part of, you know, media house who hasn't got a clue what he's on about. She's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's just a light in the sky. And I do think that's all it will ever be for is. I, I, I'll never forget years ago um, when I was doing um, some work with Mappet. Uh, we were asked by Granada TV to just do a short five-minute spot for some people who were doing a news item just to get an idea of what UFOs and, um, you know, the extraterrestrial hypothesis boiled down to. And uh, we filmed it around at a, the lad who was running Mappet at the time. We filmed it around at his house. And um, we really gave this fantastic piece of documentation about something that had happened recently and how we'd investigated it scientifically and used the scientific principle to dismiss this, this, this and this, check the airport at the time, checked astronomical databases to make sure there was nothing there, had a word with local astronomical societies to say that, you know, there was nothing that had gone on, had a look round because it had happened in the Carrington area, whether there was burn-offs at that time and I, blah, 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 really went into it. And... Um, when they actually released it, we were asked to go along so they could present it to this class. And we went because, you know, obviously we were there to, so they could ask questions of. And the main thing that they were, could be bothered about was the fact that this guy in his house had a small figure of James T. Kirk on his mantelpiece. And it was like, how can you take people seriously if you're into science fiction? And it's like, so it doesn't matter how accurate you try to be and how scientific you want to be. 
you know, you're not, you're not allowed to have anything outside of that because you're not classed as serious. So, yeah, I, I don't like the media at all. And like I say, because I've worked in it, I know how they work and I know how they twist things just for that entertainment value, for that, you know, come and look at this. All it is for, for them, for TV, doesn't matter what it is, it's figures. If they can make you a laughing stock, then they'll, they'll make you one if they, can, if they can do something with you, simple as. So I don't trust them. Do you think that that needs to change in order to get the subject taken seriously by just the pit, the average person in the street? Like you say, people don't want to talk about it because they get ridiculed, they've got that stigma oh, yeah, to it. That, that's, I think, the whole point. Well, if, if you run a group or, you know, you make yourself accessible to people in regards of the UFO phenomenon or the paranormal phenomenon, whichever you want to look at it, is that if they've got somebody to come to and you don't sort of go, oh, and, you know, was it like, little magic man zipping past on, on, on a skateboard or something. If you can actually say, okay, so when did you say it? What time of night was it? Um, did you notice if the moon was out? And start being scientific with them and sort of say, it comes across to them like, you know what, there are serious people on this. And then next time if they see something, they won't be that afraid to do it because, you know, one, they've got someone to talk to. Two, it's scientific. You're not just going to sit there and make notes. And as soon as we get people to sort of understand that, I think, yeah, more people will do it. But I honestly do not think that the media will take it on because all it needs is for them to sort of come up with a really big story and then, I don't know, say Channel 4 or something, run with it and say, you know what, this could be the most important case of all time. And then we get someone come along and say, well, actually, we're a bunch of hoaxes and we just wanted to see what you would do. And then that's it. They'll never do it again. And unfortunately, it works two ways. You've got people out there who will do it and hoax it just to sort of say, look, it can be done. So why do you believe people? And you've got the media who, as soon as something that does, uh, that, that when that does happen, that they will take that and say, you know what, this is what we're dealing with. So we can't take the subject seriously. So it's a double-edged sword and you get the likes of, you know, people like us who do take it seriously, approach it scientifically with proper research, with proper investigation, protocols in place for protecting yourselves and the public, everything like that. And, you know, that, that gets chucked out the window. It's like, well, no, that, that, let's let's go and talk to the guy down, you know, in the pub who sort of sits there with, with a Mac on with his, you know, an old copy of UFO Times or something like that. And they're the people who look at because the stranger someone is, then that, that's more what people will watch on TV. So you've got a, a quite a collection of UFO books and files. Is there, if you got a top, maybe a top two or three of must-read books that you'd recommend? So, Gun to the Head, give me two, name two books that All right. you, you, you should have to, to read. If you want to get somebody interested in, in, into the subject, um, I would go for Above Top Secret, uh, Timothy Yud. It's easy, the, the, the one thing to put into place, because one, it's got some famous cases in there. Two, it, it tells a good story and it's sort of the investigations behind it shows you both sides of it, what's happened, everything like that. So you could give that to somebody and say, have a read of this, see what you think. And, you know, I've done that with a few people who've come back and said, oh, I didn't realise it was like that. I thought it was all nutcases sat on hillsides with binoculars and wearing parkers. So, no, that's just us on a Saturday, but the serious ones, they bring out books like this. So that, that gives you, you know, a good response to that. And I suppose the other one, again, it goes back to the Socorro case, uh, Ray Stanford with the, a book called Socorro Sarsa. Um, some people pillory it, saying that he, he took a little bit, you know, of uh, poetic license with it. But if you're a writer, nine times out of ten, you do that. But the solid basis of research that he put into it, the people that he um, um, liaised with at the time, like uh, Coral Lorenzen, um, they... Uh, from APRO, they were down at the time. There's a lot of things that were going on. So it shows it from every angle that had gone. And, you know, the way he puts it across, he's got a proper scientific analysis. And, you know, he names names. It's not like, oh, well, such and such a witness um, was a person of a certain age who lived in such and such a place. He actually comes up with names with, with the places that, you know, um, actually did research on the stuff. And for me... It was one of the earliest books that I ever read um, on, on ufology. Uh, I think it was, which was that and the, the High Net UFO Experience were two of the first books that I ever read. And the, the, the Ray Stanford one has always stuck out for me as like 
you know what, if I was to investigate, that's how I'd like to do it, to be able to be approachable to people, to work with other people, to find the information, to take things to someone, to find the details off them, to put that to somebody else to look at. And he's very meticulous in what he does. So if, if I, again, if you want to see how an investigation works from getting the initial report to working on it and then passing it out to other people, yeah, definitely. Ray Stanford's the Coral Sarsa. Brilliant. Uh, just uh, remind us where we can find your YouTube channel, your radio station, so people can uh, find radio you. Radio station is called tachyonradio.com. Uh, and that's basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week radio station, which plays out old sci-fi stories, old horror stories, interspersed with um, um, UFO documentaries, UFO content. Um, there's, there's a lot more to be going on, but it's pretty difficult to try to do it all off your own back. So if anybody wants to do anything and send it in, they'll put it on there. You, you, you're welcome to. Um, and the... YouTube channel is called The Unconventional Ufologist. It's good fun. So if anybody does want to do anything that wants to be involved with Tachyon Radio, you're welcome to by all means, because the more the merrier. Uh, and The Unconventional Ufologist, it's, it's an ongoing thing. Unfortunately, sometimes work gets in the way. So I'd, I'd like to release something once every couple of weeks, but it's more like every couple of months. Um, but I enjoy doing it. And I hope that um, some of the, the um, cases that I put out there get people to turn around and go, you know what? That's not bad, that. I'd like to look a little bit more into it because it's all right somebody telling you something. But I mean, like tonight, we've touched very briefly on Socorro. We've touched very briefly on the Welsh Triangle, on the Westall, on Zimbabwe, other stories. We've only touched on them. But if it's piqued anybody's interest to go out and just, I, even if you want to Google a web page, yeah. that's great. But if you can get a book on it, even better because nothing better than having a book in your hand. Simple as. Pursuit of the Paranormal with Ash and Greg.